and welcome to the Dicer Screaming Podcast. Arg. Oh, well, uh, that says a lot. Yeah, we're back. So. Dice are practically growling. I hear that. I've got my wits back. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> the few I had. <laughs> I reacquired both of them. <laughs> oh, both of them. Oh, wow. Yeah, I lost so my marbles. There's more I, than one now. <laughs> I had two. I lost them, and now I've got them back. Uh, <laughs> but you would expect no less from... Oh, the plucky little gaming podcast that, hey, tested positive for trace amounts of fun. Trace. <laughs> yeah. We were surprised that even trace amounts were there. So we're pleased. <laughs> well, yeah, so coming up, a little bit of a longer break, but we're back. Coming right back at you, uh, rebounding from some scheduling delays, but... Hey, life happens, man. That's all we got to say well, about it. Well, Halloween weekend was just really busy for some folks. You yeah. Know, a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, you know, we didn't have a spooky scene this year. Just Oh, I had plenty of spooky. Uh, of, of all things, a snake invaded my basement. Oh, boy. So, yeah, I'm sharing space. I've named him because uh, I, I, I attempted to drive him off, but I may have failed and it took cover and hid somewhere in the, in the house. So... Uh, but I, I've named him Mr. Slithers. Mr. Slithers. Yeah. Well, here's one to you, Mr. Slithers. <laughs> yeah, uh, and for Speaking those... In the basement. For those yeah, concerned, this is not your garter snake uh, level event. That you like. This is not your little tiny blue racers or what have you. Uh, this was a large eastern fox snake. Uh, so, <laughs> I, I feel a little guilty if I do anything to hurt it. I, I don't want to... I don't want to diminish their numbers, but uh, I'm having a lot of trouble with the concept of sharing space with a snake that large that isn't in any form of container. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I'm worried when my next random encounter roll is going to, <laughs> it's going to bring. <laughs> well, it does keep you on your toes. That's yeah, there's probably one which thing. A little tidbit about the eastern fox snake, folks. Uh, Here's your genuine learning for the day. Um, uh -huh. They fake the rattle of a rattlesnake uh, in the pose. Uh, they, they actually aren't venomous, but uh, they will strike the stance of a rattlesnake when they feel threatened, uh, which even when you logically and completely understand that that is not a rattlesnake, it is still incredibly unnerving. So, <laughs> uh, much like being hissed at by a baby crocodile, well, you know, you're still being hissed at by a snake. So, yeah, you know, it, or I'm sorry, a baby alligator. Uh, not even a baby. I've, I've been hissed at by gators before, and uh, even being hissed at by a small one, there's something that rattles the nerves just a little. Uh, and if you've ever stood in a pond filled with them, trying to retrieve them so that they can be brought indoors before winter hits. Uh, being hissed at by them is no fun either. But no, uh, enough reptilian and amphibian adventures. Let us move on to the real topic at hand. Uh, we have topic today. We do. We do. And today we'll be talking about the ladies of gaming and science fiction. So we're going to be talking about authors, uh, several of the female early game employees of TSR and other companies, as well as some of the trend setting and pioneering that they did and 
how much they influence not only the game we enjoy, but other games as well as genres in which we have our headspace. So want to put a little spin on it, but before we get to that topic, we have some other business to tend to. It seems that we've been having some stray eyes fall upon us, and I just want to assure everybody that the RPG Cafe Corner is perfectly fine. It's working just as it was intended to. As a matter of fact, to even question it, I have to question the people questioning. <laughs> so, <laughs> we haven't done it in a while, and if you're concerned, don't be. It's going to be coming back, but again, we've got a lot to cover on these, because we seem to have a dearth of material and content to cover so that's not a bad thing and one of the things we are going to continue well, with is yeah, we're telling a, of the future we have a glut of a glut yes we're trying to catch back up and some of the meteor topics here i mean I, we're literally leaving stuff on that cutting room floor so to speak that grieves us and i i kid you not uh privately uh pre-show when we go over the you know topic and we decide what we're going to include that's become one of the really hard parts because there, our impulse is to include everything we can to throw everything plus rip out the kitchen sink and throw that in there too. Right. And we just can't do that in an hour. Uh, we're, we're running into that wall where, okay, we're going to have to restrain ourselves. Uh, you know, we've got to curb our enthusiasm. And is that even possible? Yeah, I know. It's tragic. I'm not, I don't enjoy that part of that at all. It's probably my least favorite facet of the editorial responsibilities where the, the pre-preparation includes sacrificing some so that the rest can you know be included uh, and it makes me wonder if we might not for some topics consider moving to a two episode you know uh, mm. start and then finish uh, by necessity for some things that are just so darned big. But yeah, well, I think at that or point some we're revisits. just kind of inflicting it on ourselves. And then, you or know. some revisits, you know, like we go back and, hey, let's pick up the stuff that we we missed. Because I think we did pretty well with the uh, Metamorphosis Alpha. Oh, well. Uh, right. And the looks at some of the post-apocalyptic games at the time. Oh, that was great. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't like know if there's actually enough gas in the tank for Twilight 2000 coverage, but I've had two people contact me and ask me about. Are you ever going to do something about that? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I don't know because I've played a few games of it, and you know, a lot of people really gravitated towards it. Uh, what was that I was told uh, in the Marines was uh, the blood of. The brothers is stronger than the water of the womb. You know, <laughs> you are bonded together by uh, by uh, acts and events, and you know, going through boot camp and going through other places, it really bonds you together with other men and ah, um, and you know, soldiers and marines and all that and sailors. We few, we happy few. Yeah, we band of brothers. St. Crispin's Day speech. Woo! Yep, and so when you put that together with that, I think that Twilight 2000 is one of those rarity cases where the people who played it were bonded by the singular experience of sharing the same game. And you can say that of, hey, I went through two more horrors with the you know, first time I played D&D. I was playing the ninth old pal, and I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I came out of that module with a stutter and a limp. Yeah, I think that bands people <laughs> together. 
uh, we'll, we'll look into that. And so, yeah, thanks everybody for your... Yeah, if we can do a meta examination of like uh, several items from that genre uh, and combine that into a single run, uh, I think that you know, like dystopian futurism, uh, you know, like post-apocalyptic futurism, might be a good meta topic to pull in a well, real we just, discussion. We just did it a while ago. Yeah, we just did. But I was just saying, like, from that conversation, from those episodes, two people had approached on singular um, platforms, one on Facebook and one on Twitter, and it asked kind of if we were ever going to do a Twilight 2000. So I don't know if there's enough gas in the tank. So well, because I only played it and I think, but the people who have experience and have the same kind of identification that I find with a lot of veterans groups that like this really forged a commonality of experience that even transcends like Traveler, Mega Traveler and some of the other games. So it is a unique system. one uh, in that sense, the, the post nuclear, uh, you know, survival game. Uh, sensibilities are pretty rarefied. You don't find a lot of games in that vein. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would imagine that uh, that's it's a unique storytelling opportunity. Uh, yeah. And, you know, people's like the crises that they ran into uh, trying to work their way. Well, forward. I, I, oh, I, I started this by just line. kind of saying that I was going to reach out to our fans out there that may be listening have any ideas about what you would think would be covered but here we are spending almost three minutes on it so well i think we got something but peek uh, at the mckayam answer yeah let's let's tear into the mckayam answer and then get into our topic because we got a lot to cover here this is a medium so mckayam answer with your blade in hand what do you see of the future i forget (laughs) but (laughs) i'm sorry i had a brain blank Well, I guess the future is uncertain. Try again. <laughs> let me shake. Well, let me let, let, let me let, shake let, the whoa, magic whoa, 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 eight ball. Let me have a moment here. I'm going to do a Karnak. Signs point to yes. <laughs> what is GURPS? And I think that should tell everybody. Okay. Uh, gazing into swords or knives, uh, the McKayam answer glimpses the future and sees Steve Jackson games getting a much deserved examination of some of their terrific products over the years. And hey, recently Car Wars has been reissued in a brand new box set edition and all of that. But has Uh, Car Wars ever truly gone away? uh, Not in our hearts, (laughs) dude. Uh, But Steve Jackson games has given so much to gaming and to gamers. like across an entire yeah. spectrum. This was not one of those groups that like, hey, let's ride this genre to death. Or like Most 42 things. reissues of this exact same thing. They didn't play that card, okay? They were out oh, there on well. the fringe doing weird stuff. They did about as much reissue and re-editioning as like D&D or other products of similar nature. But they had this fabulous catalog of all kinds of wacky stuff that people have forgotten and we want to like just turn the spotlight on and give an examination yeah we're particularly probably going to look at car wars oh yeah uh ogre and some of the meta games uh meta fantasy stuff that they did uh the fantasy trip and all that and there may be some side notes to mention yeah, we're not going to cover gurps and you know it is ironic that you mentioned they haven't beat something to death 
and read it for so long that it's absolutely rendered useless. Munchkin? Oh, okay. Uh, I, I think they've, they've taken it. kind of beloved. Sure, there's there's always something to say that, you know, Uno is beloved too, but uh, yeah. so is Operation, that wacky doctor game. I consider Munchkin hilarious because... Oh, yeah. Like it just never had a bad encounter of Munchkin, but when you look at the dearth of all the products they produced, they do have. I think that they may have crossed the Rubicon on that one. Okay, I'm going to let you have that one. Uh, You know, there's so many varieties of Munchkin that probably weren't needed. (laughs) You, everybody has their favorite one, and I can say that there with sitting uh, there's like six, seven different copies of Munchkin sitting on our game shelf now. but so, yeah, that's coming up. Yep, next episode, we're going to be talking about Steve Jackson games. If we did the Meadow TSR, this is a long overdue one. And, so. and we're not covering GURPS, not because it isn't important, but because it is of greater importance, scope and scale, and probably, in our yeah. opinion, merits its own coverage further down the road. Right, with uh, some looks at some of the best stuff. Either. The GURPS space supplement is, is prime stuff if you ever really needed to run a space science fiction campaign. Definitely one to always have on your bookshelf if you need a little toolkit or a little boost up. All right. So, with that in mind, let's tear right into the topic. We're talking about the rise of the female fantasy author. Because we were talking about C.L. Moore just a while ago. And this brought yeah. this up. And this is what we said. You know, we haven't done this one because it's been one of those things where it's daunting and a little... It, it covers so much territory. We just really can't... Uh, oh, get settled on something. So uh, yeah, we we tend to go with the rule of threes, and this is literally yeah, too big for even. that. We can't we can't restrain ourselves, or we're going to wind up just like uh, delivering Pardon. only a tiny portion of what we should. I I've chosen to go with kind of a blitz method where I've prepared some high speed blurbs about a few sources to just hammer home as much hasty info as possible and then get out uh, because there's so much meat on the bone here uh, I, I wanted to give an opener uh, regarding uh, Margaret Cavendish uh, Lady Margaret Lucas Cavendish and this is somebody who I'm not going to use the term uh, science fiction uh, although some consider her like the mother of science fiction I disagree I consider that Mary Shelley uh, because the science was far clearer and a much more important driver of the story. In the case of Margaret Lucas Cavendish, uh, her ladyship was one of the very few Western women authors of the late 1600s at a time when that was not done. Second, uh, she was largely self-taught uh, and had to be because like, even educating women was considered contentious at the time. Uh, and so it was very difficult for her to find peers. Uh, this affected the shape of what she wrote, but she wrote what I refer to as fantastic fiction, uh, the you know weird worlds. And like this is predating Voltaire's Candide and other stories. Uh, you know, she literally was crafting fantastic fiction ahead of the curve by decades uh, compared to almost anybody else in Western literature. Uh, the Gulliver's Travels and things of that nature, mm-hmm. you know, she is one of the precursors of that entire concept. Uh, and last note regarding her, uh, in The Blazing World, uh, her 
primary character was a self-insertion, a open and admitted self-insertion. Uh, Margaret Cavendish in, you know, The Blazing World. Uh, this is the first Mary Sueism. And that's, you know, it, it literally hadn't been done before. Before Mary so, Sue is a broken meme. Yeah, exactly. Now, you see this kind of stuff done all the time now, and so it's mocked and ridiculed, but at the time, it simply wasn't a thing that was done, and she broke with form and convention, familiar rules, and said, why shouldn't I do what I want? I think it would be wonderful mm. to examine another place. And well, to, to travel. it could be argued Mark Twain did about the same time. Uh, approximately 200 years later. Oh, that? Oh, yeah, okay. Margaret Cavendish is the end of the 1600s. Oh, wow. Well. Yeah. It's I, that one. So. That's why I mention her first and I blurbed it and just hit fast and hard, deliver as much info as well, possible. Because she deserves that special credit and she's totally forgotten. Yeah. I, well, I guess so. Guilty as charged. But it is intriguing that out of all the things that have come out in fantasy literature in the past 40 years or so, we still are based solely in almost the 20th century. For fantasy, and I think that most modern fantasy has a certain type of connotation. I guess of you know it has to be like castles and dragons and certain sort of things. But we also forget that the fanciful, like Gulliver's Travels, is uh, quite you yeah. Know, it, it may have been the proto stages, but it definitely invited just like the grim fairy tales. Yeah. It invited people to start exploring a different genre. Yeah, Arabian Nights, uh, yeah. Grimm's Fairy Tales, so, you know, like those are classics yeah. of ancient literature, uh, you know, legends and mythology, uh, like Arthurian mythos. Okay. You know, these were writings that were influential in the concept of So I could definitely see why 1600s would, yeah, self-insertion just wasn't done. That was, yeah, yeah. that was a force of all that you just didn't break. So. No, and I mean, considering that you know, <laughs> the Royal Society would not even permit her to join. Well, you in. see, my advantage in life is that I don't have a plan, so I can't be foiled by a failure. <laughs> that's what I've liked to do throughout my entire thing. So when I do make mistakes, I like to try to fess up to them as quick as I can. Now, we've covered Mary Shelley, so we're going to just move on past oh, that. Oh, well, yeah, sure. Well, how about we, uh, how about this? Um, we can spend a lot of time looking do you want to do the early parts, do you think? Or because there's I'm like, gonna fight a list. To I, go I don't want to offend people, but we are going to flash through some of the early authors of uh, like the, the women of science fiction and fantasy that hmm. you know, because yeah. we also want to then move on to the coverage of gaming. Uh, you know, the 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 contributors to TSR. Right. I days. kinda wanna see this uh one criticism has been leveled, and uh, this will satisfy you out there who's listening, <clears throat> Dave. That um, Dave, Dave, um, just totally hate the name. <laughs> yeah, we had uh, we don't talk a lot. It seems like sometimes we don't talk about gaming, and we're a gaming podcast. So yeah, I would like to kind of address that, but I like where this is going. So I'm just gonna go ahead and take it away, my friend. All right, some high-speed high speed blurbs. You mentioned C.L. Moore, who, again, contemporary of the era of Pulp Fiction, and, again, mm -hmm. forgotten, okay? Uh, there's a little bit of mythology that uh, women did not write in science fiction or they adopted men's names. 
that is a thing that did happen, but it was not as prevalent as people think. There were an awful lot of female authors who did not conceal their gender as writers. Uh, however, to highlight a few of the very famous, uh, the <clears throat> James Tiptree Jr. Uh, was actually a female author uh, of science fiction and fantasy, uh, or fantastic fiction. Uh, another, not precisely, at, at no time did C.J. Sherry ever, as an editor and writer, you know, go to great lengths to conceal her gender, uh, but rather uh, there was the obligatory adding of an H to the end of the name Sherry because uh, a publisher had, I guess, complained that uh, it sounds like the name of a romance writer. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was to be taken a little more seriously. Uh, and a few others did this, but this was not a common practice. Uh, Andre Norton, you know, very famously, like, has that kind of name that, like, you're not quite sure where that lands. Uh, fooled a lot of people. But tying Andre Norton to modern fiction and the contributions to gaming, literally, the novel Quag Keep is one of the first glorious examples of uh, people in the mundane, regular world we know crossing over into the world of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, oh, yeah. And that's Andre Norton. Now novelization of fantasy games. Yeah. She sat in on. It is absolutely one so, of the quintessential. Well, and then well, you have like better known people like Ursula K. Le Guin, <laughs> who's Wizard Artsy. Like they never kidded anybody about their gender. Uh, you know, like never pretended to be anything other than who they were. Uh, Margaret Atwood, uh, you know. Barely uh, hate nail gun. Anne McCaffrey. Okay, Dragon Riders of Pern. Uh, you know, Mercedes Lackey. Uh, well, okay. Well, why don't we yeah. slow down a little bit? Now, uh, let, let's adjust the speed down here. Let's go from uh, two times down to uh, one. Uh, so we're talking about with modern fantasy writers. You know, when you start out, we we started with, with what got this uh, path trodden with us. Was talking about C.L. Moore and how that uh, her Jeremy of Jory had spawned a Kickstarter for the uh, Kiss of the Black God, and how that changed pulp. But yeah, there had been many women before, but what we're talking about here is the real advent of the science fiction writer. And you're right there that that would trend to kind of cover up your name as a female, as an author, and then later gamer it was quite common. It was quite common into the uh, mid-80s, almost to the 90s. Yeah, adopting a pen name so that you could write undisturbed was or common amongst just men. just kind of keeping your name like, we're going to go with one. Like so Simon Hawk. Who, like, there is no Simon Hawk. That's, no. that's another well-known author who wanted to have the freedom to do pulpy sci-fi novels without like people going, you lowered yourself to that? You know, people can be very snobby. Oh, yeah. Okay. Science fiction did not always have the sterling <laughs> reputation it does today. And that's saying something. <laughs> not that it has a great one, but, you know, oh, boy. people still, uh, they still work on it. So let's start off with Audrey Norton. Um, her Witch World series. Oh, yeah. I just put it on the, uh, and did you see the Facebook post? I, I did. Yeah. 
world, Sorcerers of Witch World. What I liked about those novels really was that it was science fiction disguised as fantasy. <laughs> but at the yeah. same time, it, it still had that wonderful blend of that early grasping. Fiction, this was an unexplored field. You could do anything with this. Yeah, and that's exactly what they said. Why not? You know, in the same way that Jack Vance did the Dying Earth series. Here was Andre Norton carving out her own with uh, strong female characters that weren't dressed in revealing uh, garments that yeah, clung exactly. to their curves, you know, as male. Oh, they would not describe in loving detail how to dress this male bikini. Oh. <laughs> it just, you know, it just clings to them. Yeah, no, no one thinks of themselves like that. And so here's an actual mature, and not to see how more was, that wasn't what we're getting at. No. But it was guys basically writing as uh, female characters, and it was always bad at this point. There were a few good examples we could pull out, but to, to keep it back on, she really treated, uh, reading that book, she really treated her main characters very uh, cynically, like, towards what their role was. And yes, they were women, this was a world ruled by violence, but they too could bring violence. They too could wield powers, and they had to be reckoned with. And I think that that kind of where she was coming out swinging was kind of the sign of the times that, you know, probably how she felt being treated at science fiction, fiction conventions and panels where, you know, oh, it's look, it's, 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 it's cute that, you know, isn't that adorable? She's just writing a, a nice fantasy novel, you know, the, a science fiction novel. She's like, shut up. Yeah. And, and like this kind of commentary by people who were in the exact same trade. Okay. They, they write short stories of science fiction and fantasy for a living and they're like oh isn't that cute you know like one of the girls has decided to try her hand at this manly art like uh i think you can you know like you left manly a few miles back you, like <laughs> yeah. devoted your time you to could a definitely typewriter. yeah you know what i could definitely feel like it wasn't like it was distracting but there was a certain like these were not women to be messed with not because they're just written super badass but because they kind of are dangerous and uncertain and if you underestimate them do so at your own peril uh yeah do not underestimate uh, i i do want to mention a slightly well, later one barbara hambly yeah um, who oh, was oh. a karate instructor and like just had this variety of odd jobs medieval oh, yeah. history student her novels are fantastic her female characters are superb her male characters oh, are yeah, wonderfully yeah. complicated too they they have personality and life and well it goes right back to the very first uh person that, you know, that you pick a character that was wonderful, that did a self-insert, that took their writing not only seriously, but said, why can't, why not? Why not do what I want? This is my thing. You know, I was uh, comparing, the, made the bad comparison to Mark Twain, but, you know, when he did it, people were still kind of shocked and appalled that you would self-insert. <laughs> of course, why not? All right, Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Uh, well, I was thinking the one where, uh, gosh, I just forgot the name of the book. Uh, where they met, meet the devil. Oh, yeah, uh, Letters from the Earth. Yes, Letters from the Earth. Which was not truly a self-insertion per se, but... Uh, it, like, yeah, he was in there. He, as the editor, is delivering yeah. the information. But, you know, like, to move back to the ladies of science fiction and fantasy, uh, I, I do want to mention C.J. Sherry's... Uh, one of my favorite things was the Merovingian Knights anthologies yeah. with, uh, like, superb, ed superbly edited uh, shared world concept. Uh, which there was a brief window period where Thieves' Marian. World with Robert Ashburn was very big, and one of the other ones was Merovingian Knights, 
organized by C.J. Sherry, who was like the chief architect world builder. I enjoyed that very much. Uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley of uh, the Mist of Avalon and the Quarters here. Her other works. Oh, yes. Marion Zimmer Bradley. Oh, how could I forget for and, a moment? You know, when we mentioned Ursula de Gwynn, I mean, Ursula de Gwynn by herself is just right up there with, uh, as far as world building and a whole system of magic, <sighs> all on in one novel. Yeah, I mean, matching Andre Norton for prolific writing. Uh, you know, just... When you consider the Earthsea series and how much it contains in world building and the seriousness of the naming and the magic system is more than just flash and bang. Yeah, huge influence on the rising, you know, concepts of gaming at the time that it was emerging. Uh, you know, had... Yeah, the true names. I mean, that whole was like, oh, that they definitely just stole that wholeheartedly from her, from the, uh, Ursula Dewey. Well, I mean... Of course, you can't blame them. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, it's also... Guilty standard, as charged. Standard occultism, though. You know, uh, similar sure. points. Uh, you know, both parties were likely as literate on the subject oh, as no. each other. Uh, I loved uh, some of the discoveries I made uh, owed to, like... Uh, on this journey to prepare this, I have like developed a list of things that I need to read because I have not read a lot of the writings of James Tiptree Jr. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it was Alice Bradley Sheldon, uh, and you know she did not want her writing style and genre choice, uh, you know, pulp novelist. Uh, to reflect poorly on her in her personal life. And so it was not that, like, you know, people would not buy this from a woman. Oh, okay. You know, it was it was more like, I don't want this to be involved in my personal life. So she made that choice for perfectly valid reasons. All right. Well, we're going to get back into it, but we're going to take a break right now. So stick around. And we're back. So, hey, welcome. Talking about the women of sci-fi, fantasy, and gaming. So, yeah, really uh, a very deep dive there, Mike. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. That, that uh, Lady Cavendish. Yeah. I know. It, it's going back a little farther than we originally planned, and I sprung that on you by surprise. But I Well, we did not. This one, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, ladies and germs, uh, we are the literary two-headed end of gaming podcast and we are a little more intellectual than we should be i think sometimes our reach exceeds our grasp but i definitely like that this one we're going with no safety rails on this is a non-osha approved podcast <laughs> we have no safety devices so this one i purposely did not talk to mike before we started because i just wanted to see where this would go because we really want to pay tribute to things that really put it in there yeah we yeah, both put us go. out there on the edge of where we can bring you something maybe you didn't think about and boy did you deliver a bushel basket of surprises so, as well, i said we want to tie it together too and don't worry we will I just wanted to make a, a quick mention about the changing of names because I think this is really important. A lot, not a lot of people will. We start bringing about gaming now. What uh, seventy four? 
yeah, we see the emergence of uh, white box set, and it kind of a lot of people um, like to pretend that they were there. And I mean, I imagine in a lot of ways they were, you know, intellectually. Even even if it was like several years later that it caught on. I see most people who were there at the very early part of it became a part of the scene, and we know who those are. Lacofla, yeah, it, exactly um, the. Obviously, the core people around,、uh, you know, the co-creators in that original group. The original co-creators formed a group of people around them that very、yeah. quickly began to spread outward, and、uh, it started to move through Midwestern colleges,、uh, and <laughs> it really hit heavy in the engineering department <laughs> wherever you went. Yeah,、uh, math but, departments. You know, it was surprising, like. It was it was surprising how quickly it moved virally before the era of the meme. Okay, right. But already people were involved in science fiction and fantasy. That's why we wanted to bring up like Andre Norton and、uh, Ursula Le Guin because Barbara Hamley too and Marion Zimmer Bradley they all had a lot of roles to play in early science fiction and fantasy. But there was another person, Lee Gold, and for a lot of people, when I mention that Lee Gold's a woman, I get a lot of weird looks. Now, if you don't know who Legal is, do you? You ever heard of Legal? No. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, she's the person primarily responsible. She's the editor of Alarms and Excursions. If you remember that, that's the oh my gosh. Yeah, and she'd been involved in.、Um, geez, what is it? There's forty years that this fanzine has been published, and it's only missed two issues. In the entire forty-year run, but she had been、uh, a big contributor in the California scene of science fiction fandom, and does some stuff with Filk. I guess is that what am I pronouncing it right? Filking. I don't know. You know the the fan music where you take a song and you add words and phrases.、Um, I don't know. All right. Well, if you're out is, there, is that folks, a thing that people do? Yes. I was not aware. I wasn't. I, I guess maybe you don't. But I sometimes doubt your personhood. Because you are allegedly Mike, and sometimes yeah, well, we have suspicions. <laughs> All right, yeah, like some other incarnation <laughs> of Mike may have gone out and filked at some point, but、uh, I haven't heard a lot about it. Nah, I, nah. I didn't know this was a thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a thing. So, <clears throat> anyway, yeah,、uh, Lee Gold, big person in helping get there. I mean, look, the the real thing that、uh, Lee Gold broke with alarms and excursions. I mean, not only did Gary Gygax, Steve Perrin, and Oh, I think even Greenwood was part of it. That scene it brought a lot of people together, and when they began publishing stuff for more than just、uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and it moved on. I mean, it really opened up the gates for what you could do for your own games, the Tunnels of Trolls. Yeah,、uh, this was like the you know、uh, the rapid expansion of concepts and the discussion of concepts that could be added to your games、uh, was just exploding outwards. And you know, I, I got to say, Lee Gold, though I did not know the name,、uh, you know, it's just another reminder that it was not as much of an engineering school bastion of white kids as people imagine.、Uh, there was a great deal more going on.、Uh, it just wasn't ballyhooed or highlighted. Later. Uh, owed to the fact that the game was extremely popular with guys,、uh, the common perception became that 
that's what it was. It, like that's the end and the beginning. Yeah, we, that's the Alpha and Omega there. Yeah, that's all you that, get. Uh, but and it's not true. It's not. It's not as rigid or as fixed as people have imagined. It was a much more fluid time period than people think. Right, and uh, Lee, and they called, um, they also published a fan fiction. I think it was uh, fan fiction magazine for. It's called the Third Foundation, off of the Isaac Asimov Foundation series, from '62 to '69. Oh my! But uh, anyway, as of September 2022, according to the page here, they have 563 issues of Lardens and Excursions. So that's a hell of. I mean, we talk about the Dragon Magazine, Alarms and Excursions, has been going on almost continually, as a amateur press association. You know, that's one of the big things that really started up with folks. But I think uh, early on, I think, uh, you know, you couldn't blame the kind of way that women were handled in the gaming hobby. Uh, because I remember reading in uh, John Peterson's book, uh, just sitting on the shelf again, like, bro, that originally when they started putting out uh, numbers, uh, strategy and tactics, magazine surveyed that said that uh, as few as 0.5% of the surveyed war gamers returned in the uh, questionnaire were women. And oh, I, yeah, especially in that era where you were yeah, dealing uh, with I war think it was, gamers was in particular. That they, they did a big survey. They wanted to get some numbers in. And that's war gamers, not role playing gamers. Uh, like the, right. Well, that wasn't until until 74. But yeah, the curve that happened when things shifted to role playing instead of uh you know wargaming was remarkable it was as if a door opened uh and you know people came flooding in that had never been in these communities before and then you found this weird intersection of wargamers which was like a bastion of dude uh, <laughs> bastion of dude <laughs> that's the way of putting it yeah, a yeah. bastion of dude in the realm of brodonia uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm having a Cronar moment. For a thousand generations, we have not known the taint of woman. <laughs> exactly. So it's, it gets. A, I'm sorry, Oglaf. I had to slip that in there. <laughs> but uh, I yeah, think it, it, it uh, got a little weird. But it quickly, very quickly changed, uh, and women were in science fiction and fantasy, as far as the the writing and creation parts right from the get-go they had always been there uh, and there there is like a lack of credit given that is almost palpable well um we go down and you look just a few years later uh yeah dungeon dragons comes out 74 and they start taking tsr starts taking an interest as they get corporate uh, going to davism and they start to look and see what was their player base like, and they're finding it, you know, maybe it's about zero four point zero point four percent are female gamers. But uh, Origins here it says the Origins seventy eight uh, had about five percent of attendees were female, and they were TSR was starting to find that most of the women that were involved in gaming were boyfriends or wives or girlfriends of the and wives of these guys. You know, the, the real gamer, these were just hangers on and may not necessarily be the type of core audience they're going for, but nonetheless, uh, Space Gamer, 
Magazine also uh, put in there that the Judges Guild said about 2.3%. And uh, so I think that when Gygax came out in Dragon number 22 <laughs> and said that 10% of the players are female, be nicer to your female gamers, you know, don't try to... Uh, well, yeah, what you'd watched was like over a period of like almost exactly 10 years going from a war gamer participation of like point... <laughs> Like, uh, what is it? Oh, 0. 0.5. 0. 0.5, yeah. Okay. Which, uh, which strategy and tactics, you know, the questionnaire. Are you a woman? Yeah, I mean, uh, first, you know, like out of perhaps a couple of thousand diehard war gamers, uh, to find that there were only four or five women in the mix somewhere around there. Yeah. Uh, was not surprising, really. But to watch that go from like, uh, you know, 0. 0.5 to like, 2.3 to yeah. like 5% attendance and then rapidly moving into 10. You could see that there was this, you know, it, it almost trouble with tribbles. Like they're duplicating, they're duplicating. Yeah. The female gamers, you know, they were basically girlfriends and wives. And so at first, on camp followers, the, the, yes, that, that was this hateful term. attitude persisted. Yeah. There was a sense of like, but the, but yeah, they used to have to put up with this wrote... in the engineering department lunchroom. <laughs> it's just me and the boys. Sandwiches. Yeah, so yeah, which when you got the uh, when you got guy guys coming out and saying, "Hey, like you know, treat women just like you. They're probably uh, know the rules just as well as you do, if not better." They're, you know, they're ready to game and, you know. I know your... some of you may be socially awkward, but try not to be a completely condescending piece of crap. <laughs> yeah, he had to come out. You knew that things were changing. Yeah, that, that was Gary being as polite as he could, but I, I think he knew the score. Like, he had, everybody who was there witnessed it. There was always somebody who, like, wow, you are really making this difficult. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, when we talk about, uh, Alarms and excursions. You know, when you look at its, its contributors story. here, as I'm pulling up their page, Gygax, Arrow, Edwards, Symbolist, um, David Hargrave, Steve Perrin, yeah, I mentioned Perrin, uh, Jonathan Tweet. Wow. I, I, there you go. You know, we just need to talk about alarms and excursion and all that stuff. So we'll leave it there. But yeah, the debt we, we had there. But let's talk about another person, uh, Janelle Jaquay. Now, of course, everybody knows that Janelle has transitioned, but at that time they were writing as Paul. Yeah. Not, and not to dead name, but you know, like this is a person who like, you know, we refer only in past tense uh, to their original published works, uh, but we absolutely acknowledge I, I think we can well. recognize them as, as, as a woman yeah. who was very influential. You know, we all know that uh, Yikwe wrote the Dungeoneer magazine for Judges Guild. Yeah edited that for a couple of years and then did the dark tower which was you know quintessentially one of the best things that i think judges guild did and uh, they have a very unique perspective on the industry so if you can uh, follow them on facebook or any of their other places uh, janelle is very open to being approached but i also think that uh, they broke some ground there um but here you go, here you go, that Lee Gold and Jaquay basically broke ground on their own. Uh, they were doing an amateur press and, you know, basically the Dungeoneer magazine, you know, they needed a, a magazine for Judges Guild to carry forth some stuff. Well, so, which I, I want to mention that uh, yeah. uh, while Morovingan Knights was a favorite, uh, you know, like C.J. Sherry edited an awful lot of material. Uh, over many, many years, in addition to prolifically writing. So, a uh, whole, like, just 
amazing editorial contribution in, uh, frankly, in my opinion, uh, editorially superior to a lot of the, the other work. I think I would, I would put, uh, you know, Robert Asprin did a lot of similar editorial role uh, and you know, like guiding of mm. like anthology publications. So, I mean, the two of them are right up there at the top of the list for that to me. Uh, but I, I also wanted to mention the writing of Octavia Butler, uh, oh. the Lilith Brood trilogy. Uh, that's actually getting optioned for TV. So like that's, I, I feel like that's probably going to show up and I cannot wait to see that. I want to see how that pans out. I hope it's treated well. Uh, you know, with TV, we always like have bated breath. We never know how it's going to go. But no, the early days of TSR and of course, uh, the module we reviewed, which we, we actually covered ground on that, uh, one of the early contributors. Yeah, we uh, want to talk about the first TSR employee, which was Gene Wells. Yeah, that's where we were headed, is Gene Wells, uh, the forgotten TSR employee from the earliest days of gaming, uh, in the days of the like early B-series modules. Right, we mentioned that Andre Norton was important because she wrote Quag Keep. But as it was an unofficial D&D novel, you know, trademarked copyrights and things like that. Yeah. They, they couldn't really come out and say, hey, you know, this, is a, this is a D&D novel. They kind of did mention it, but it was under the radar. Uh, they hired uh, Gene Wells. They, uh, apparently, in, uh, according to the according to the, uh, the Wikipedia, yeah, uh, Gygax flew her out to Wisconsin in 79 and decided uh, she was a good fit, hired her up, and... Uh, they announced it. Um, Wells was a D&D player and a romance writer, but she didn't have a whole lot of experience with rules design and development. And so Gygax basically said, I'm hiring you for your imagination. We'll teach you the rest. And then yeah. kind of threw her in the deep end of the deep pool <laughs> and sink or swim. But apparently uh, other staff members would not let her play in the, in the office game. Yeah, and that was the like uh, awkward hostility that we're talking about here. Is right, that, and if you look at where that Dragon magazine comes down, I think that uh, guy actually dropping the hammer not only on gamers across the uh, world or within the... Uh, <laughs> that was a message very specifically uh, intended to be heard by the people in his own office. Okay? Uh, that was... It was a message in-house as well as out it was intended for all ears but like there's a little backhanded shot at the team back home going guys i need you to man up here you know where's where's your ability to cooperate in a modern workplace yeah you i can't be having this because the times they are a changing and you better get with it or you're basically whale oil and we will move on without you Okay, you keep your blubber to yourself. Yeah, but when she came in, she helped. Uh, apparently, she wrote an uncredited section in the Dungeon Master's Guide. I've tried to track it down. Oh, doing this, can't find out what she did. And also, was the sage of the Sage Advice column, Rose column, the Dragon Magazine. Oh, oh, oh. right in there. And her character, uh, just a little bit of trivia, uh, Sadel can be found in the Rogues Gallery. She's, she's listed in there, as well as one of her characters on the. Uh, DM's adventure log. Hmm. So. But for better or for worse, the infamy comes down to B3, Palace of Silver Princess, and, uh, you know, she was there with, uh, co-authoring with several other people, but it was mostly there. 
that uh, she gets the blame. Uh, some people claim that uh, it wasn't edited sufficiently and Wells got called out over some S&M elements. And I think that had more to do with Errol Otis's drawing. It was a weird time and that module just kind of fell apart and had to be reprinted by Moldovay. They kept some of the stuff, but... <laughs> How do you know it was awkward and uncomfortable? It was in the 70s. So, yeah, so, okay, yeah. that... It, well, sorry, not everything. There, well, 70s, that, early 80s. There was a lot of weird stuff in it. And I, some people claim that the stuff that got self inserted or was put there purposely to sabotage it. Like, not going to get there, but yeah, it was a painful process. And other women had been able to start doing some stuff as well. I mean, uh, uh, Laura Hickman was co authoring uh, several modules as well. Jeez, uh, what was it? Uh, Rahasia. Pharaoh, uh, she was part of that, as even before Dragonlance, and uh, Margaret Weiss was uh, brought on as a uh, writer directly, but she was also a, a big TV player. And uh, you talk about uh, some other care, uh, women that were uh, big in that scene at times. Uh, Jean Rabe would come a little bit later. She was a very prolific editor of the Polyhedron magazine for the RPGA. And it turns out she was actually a journalist and worked with, uh, went on after a TSR to work on Star Wars West End Games uh, lines and the Battletech line as well, and worked with Andre Norton on some short story anthologies with uh, Martin Greenberg. He was also known for, like, he was a guy who just did stuff in anthologies. So. And uh, Penny Petticord was there, and Barbara Young, uh, editor of Dungeon Magazine. She was there for quite a few years. I, and my first writing attempt was with Barbara you know, as an editor. Sent me the nicest, re nicest rejection I ever got. <laughs> uh, also, uh, uh, Anne Gray McCready, the, uh, she did the Red Sony manuals and Kingdom of Rendy, sort of gazetteer for uh, Star Up. But I'm going to come in and give this one Liz Danforth from Tunnels and Trolls. Marvelous illustrator and uh, game writer, also uh, a partner of Mike Stackpole by the time. But, you know, the name of women starts to get bigger as you come about to the middle of the 80s. And I think that's due to the fact that a lot of these, that glass ceiling was really starting to break. Yeah, it had begun to crumble. The Also, the societal perception that, uh, like, this was not a field of endeavor that was appropriate for women, had pretty much died. Women were becoming very successful authors uh, and serialized authors in other genres as well. And in all fields of employment and endeavor, uh, you know, the new attitude was there's nothing wrong with that. So you, you start to see it's not that nobody did it before that or that extremely few or that it was incredibly rare, but rather people actually noticed and paid attention. And honestly, that like starts the ball rolling where more people join in, more people feel like, hey, I can do this too, uh, which is terrific for my money. Uh, as you start to see a like later generation, I, I do want to mention a couple of older generation writers of great importance, Connie Willis, who like literally 11 Hugo Awards, seven Nebula Awards, okay? Holy cow. Yeah, okay, this is one of the most awarded people. 
largely not well remembered, uh, unfairly. Joanna Roos, uh, but I, I Lee Brackett. Uh, oh, Lee Brackett, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you start to see a second gen happen. Uh, in the 80s, where you're correct, like all of a sudden the door was open and a lot more people. Uh, yeah, Iron Crown Enterprises field. started publishing MERP, or at least source books for, before there was a MERP, they published source books. And you started to see a lot more female authors come into that, uh, game writers specifically. And I think that's because Middle Earth is a little bit more female friendly, pardon the expression. Not that, you know, D&D is. Well, anyways, but let's let's face it. The bar for entry is your understanding of Tolkien, and anybody highly literate who loves Tolkien, welcome to join in. Right, uh, and, you know, uh, that's really the the only hurdle. Uh, I, <laughs> well, it was familiar outside of gaming. I mean, you were, you're talking a rarefied spectrum of noble gases that comprise the <laughs> fart sphere of <laughs> Grognard space and a so when you start here. talking about that you know middle earth token specifically is a lot more well known outside of that and yeah. so you know it's not too hard to make of, the transition from too token. big a phenom to be ignored right yeah. a lot more accessible too in every bookstore it's, it's something that anybody can encounter but you, you know when you start seeing like white wolf come out and uh, you know that attracted a lot of women writers as well you know not just because oh it's a vampire larping but because the horror fantasy crossover is a oh, lot yeah. easier bar for entry than it is Let's for like you gotta to know rice. rules I mean, here you just tell a good story and you're in and even Anne Rice I mean it's speculative fiction right. and she didn't tend to focus on the science fiction parts but more on the fantasy mythology uh, but still there right it's still hugely there hugely influential uh, not right at first, you know, the first novel was panned uh, by many critics. Uh, it's overwhelming popularity, you know, was more of a cult following that was poo-pooed by the high and mighty. But as the years went by, she kept honing her craft and her books got better and better. I, <laughs> I have a lovely collection of them. Very yeah, but you myself. know, you're seeing like a lot more women now, um, not only just running companies like Lisa Stevens, but uh, there's a lot of good uh, game designers, board game designers, and even war gamers now, like in charge of some miniature games that really are starting to bring it forward, you know. Yeah, in the right corners of the internet, you're only going to hear that there is even such a thing as women in game design, creation, and management. Uh, on the occasion that one of them drops the ball. Uh, but the truth is, this is a completely integrated hobby sphere and business atmosphere at this stage. And the everyday average is excellence. It doesn't seem to matter uh, at all, you know, what gender a person is. Uh, you know, we've just seen this magnificent rising tide of creative excellence uh, in this last decade and a half, I think. Uh, especially this last decade has been Yeah, remarkable. I think that one of the things that really comes about is that, like, Lee Gold went on to do Land of the Rising Sun hmm. for uh, Fantasy uh, Games Unlimited, which was uh, an offshoot. The Land of the Rising Sun was an offshoot of chivalry and sorcery. Ah. Uh, so this was meant to be the kind of their oriental adventures but they did it a little bit before it was the bushido 
sort of thing. But she did a really good job with that. And I don't think that a lot of women get credit. I mean, a lot of people in the OSR can kind of point and say, yeah, uh, Jean Wells, you know, she was responsible for that fiasco with B3. But they really, you know, it's so muddied and I hear so many different things. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of believe, like Tim Cass says, that, you know, that, that that was a little bit after he started to leave, but there's a lot more that went on behind the scenes than anybody will admit. You know, they, they like to point a lot of fingers, but very few people take any responsibility. He was the only one to kind of own up to a couple of things. Yeah, I I got to admit, my empathy does tend to go to the person who says the buck stops here and like, okay, here's a clear mistake that I made. You know, this is something I did wrong. And then if nobody else in the room is willing to step up and go, okay, I may have made a mistake too. I'm pretty sure at that point that there's a whole list of other people that dropped the ball. But you, you uh, see, taking like, shots at the Bloom brothers who were mighty and powerful was probably not a great choice. I'm just going to throw it out there. But I think we all agree that the Bloom brothers had it coming. So if you yeah, weren't taking cheap shots at them, then that was really more of a statement of cowardice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we really, you know, like Penny Pettycord, you know, she did the top secret for all those. Uh, kept it going with uh, Merle and uh, the uh, was it Spies Advice article. And, uh, she was the go-to and editor for that one for a long time. She does it. A lot of these women did editing jobs, and that's a really unsung oh, position. It, and it's it's one of the most thankless yeah, and thankless. ruthlessly exhausting tasks in literature, especially in the short story anthology business. It's an essential role. Uh, Poppy Z. Bright had done it uh, with the Love and Vain series, which is more of a descendants from the uh, Anne Rice field of speculative weird fiction and horror. Uh, you know, you, you see that thankless task. Uh, a lot of the great contributors there, uh, which, oh man. Uh, <laughs> tend to be the women of science fiction and fantasy. A lot of the big contributions to excellence in... You know, yeah, and that's it. Is we enjoyed a lot of the stuff that uh, we enjoyed has been brought to us by the hard work of editors, of the thankless task of being an editor. So that's well, off to all the uh, fine folks, mostly women who did a lot of this uh, grunt work to keep these lines going. When Yeah, know. if people were thinking that it was just like, oh, you know, they're really good at the fantasy poo imagination parts, but not at the nuts and bolts. Ha! Uh, wrong again. Yeah, yeah. they were thrown in, in there with like, the, here's a set of rules. In there with them. the wrench getting stuff operational in the engineering of the project. That there's the ladies too. You know, yeah, and never you been know, not miniature gaming is opening up to women designers too, and it, it's really good. And more than just to be virtue signaling or any other uh, dismissal of trying to praise women, I think that this is a good time to take. A, like, a, if you heard names you didn't know, then yeah, we had it should be obvious that like that's not a virtue signal. We okay? both we both hit each other with. And I learned stuff on this journey. Like I picked up a couple of names that like I have things to look up now and go read that I'm very interested in because I didn't know about. And you know, we could mention Elaine Cunningham and a couple others that came out of the TSR literary pool where they were told to write novels and like come up with a novel. Okay, here's a novel. Yeah, uh, it, it, and, there's so much we couldn't cover in this single session, but. We, we may have left we, it on the cutting room We gave floor. it our humble best. So 
So we hope you appreciate it, and like, hopefully you'll learn something. If you did, yeah, track down know. something and Give read us, it. Drop us a call. Look into those names. We'll put you up on the uh, good old podcast next week. So until next time, we're going to cast Anchor in way out. So until next time, may the, the dice always, always roll in your, your favor. favor. We're out. See ya.